0: TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, whole food life that totally rocks. You're listening to Shiny Healthy You, the straight-talking natural health show for busy women, with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Hello and welcome to the first of my little podcast series about my trip to Greece. As I'm recording this, I'm a wee bit jet lagged, so please forgive me if I sound a little quieter than usual or even if I mess some words up. I've been getting words back to front and even very inappropriately putting the wrong words into sentences since I've arrived back. Um, Like, for example, my husband told me about a friend of ours who's unwell and having some medical tests, and I accidentally said, that's awesome, instead of what I meant to say, which was, that's awful. So clearly I should probably not be let behind a microphone yet, but I'm on a deadline to get this to you ASAP, so let's give it a shot and see how we go, hey? Okay, so as most of you will know, I headed off to Greece on the 5th of February to join up with a group organized by an NGO called Involvement Volunteers International, There were about 30 of us in this big team. So there were doctors, nurses, naturopaths, nutritionists and other allied health workers. Our mission was to break up into smaller teams and head to various refugee camps throughout Greece to volunteer our time and our expertise wherever it was needed. Our first stop was a big meet-up in Athens. So we had a bit of a get-to-know-you night. So after getting to know our team members and having a dinner... We had a bit of a quick sightseeing trip to the Acropolis and the Parthenon, which was awesome. Then our first job on the ground was to help out some people living locally. So some of our group had identified some refugees living quite rough in Athens, and they wanted to help bring them some healthy food. So we broke up into smaller groups and set out to make this happen. A few of us went to the local produce market, which was an awesome experience in itself. Oh my God, it was fantastic. And I bought oranges and bananas for a hundred people and all the ingredients needed to make a healthy muesli slice. Then we headed back to a place called Cora House, which is a a building there that has um, facilities that look after refugees. Lots of volunteers working there, lots of people cooking up a storm. And with the help of their commercial kitchen, we made up the food and then assembled the bags to give out to the people on the streets. So some other members of the group had sourced other foods like flatbread and hummus and in no time at all care packages were made up. Then we handed them over to some other members of our team who went out in the depths of the night to distribute them. As our volunteers pounded the pavements, they came across a fair few local homeless people as well. So they ended up being well fed also and they were really grateful for the help too. So that was our first night there. And then we broke up into smaller groups and went further afield. So some people went north. Um, We had a team that went up to Thessaloniki, up the very north of Greece. We had people who went out onto the islands. We had a group that went to a camp called Enophita. And I was actually sent to a camp called Ritzona, where together with an NGO called Lighthouse Relief, we would be working with pregnant and breastfeeding women. So one of our aims in this camp would be to keep the women breastfeeding, especially ones with babies who are zero to six months old, as this dramatically decreases infant mortality rates in the camps. So after a quick brainstorm in Athens about how to best support these women, our Ritsona group set off to the nearby shopping district in Athens to look for herbs. We came across the most amazing shop that stocked just about every herb you could ever imagine. It was like a nerdy herbalist's wet dream. Honestly, I felt like I was in Disneyland for naturopaths. Everywhere you turned, there were bulk herbs for sale and you could take all of this home and mix it up and use it as tea. And we thought, awesome. Really good quality herbs, too. Like many were wild crafted, which means they're grown and gathered in the wild rather than farmed. And heaps of organic produce, too. From what I could see, the Greeks are really big on organic farming, which is really cool. Like even a lot of their local olive oils are organic, etc. So that was really good to see. So we put together a recipe for breastfeeding tea. It contained herbs that are known to increase milk production and flow. Uh, plus, the added benefit that was that by drinking the tea, the women were becoming more hydrated, which would also help to produce more milk. There were also herbs in this mix that we made that would promote relaxation, which then also has that flow-on effect of helping the flow of breast milk. So, yay. But we didn't stop there. We thought, what about the other women in the camp when we get there? You know, the ones who aren't breastfeeding what could we do to help them? So after asking about what other health issues we might see in the camps when we got there, we also came up with a cough and cold tea because we were told there was a flu epidemic going around. A calming tea, obviously because people are quite stressed in the camps and a general wellbeing tea that we could distribute to anyone else so that no one felt left out. So we also had several tubs of protein powder, courtesy of BioCeuticals, to take to the camp that I'd stashed in my luggage (laughs) to assist women who were not getting enough protein, which would also help when they were breastfeeding. So armed with all these goodies, we headed north to a town called Halkida, and we met up with the Lighthouse Relief Crew, who took us to nearby Ritzona. Ritzona camp. Okay, so it's recently been winterized. Which means that the residents were no longer living in tents, but they're now in what's called ISO boxes, which are tiny little shipping container type buildings. Each one houses up to seven residents. and most, most of the people in them, they're families. So you'd have up to seven people in an ISO box and, and most of them would all be related in some way. Lots of women with lots of kids as well. These iso boxes are super small, but they managed to also fit in a little tiny kitchen space and a toilet. So it's all self-contained and you can lock it, which means that it's way better than a tent because you can't lock a tent, obviously. So during the day, the beds were turned into like a modular living space and then they'd turn back into a sleeping area at night. Now, in their infinite wisdom, <laughs> someone had given out, either the government or one of the NGOs had given out a bunch of steel-framed single beds, which obviously didn't suit the needs of the residents. So all these beds were put outside the tents, uh, outside the ISO boxes, sorry, and repurposed into makeshift drying racks for the washing. So you'll see in the photos on my website There's single beds around. And I was like, what's with all the single beds outside the ISO boxes? And it was explained to me that that quite often the refugees are given things that are inappropriate for their needs. And um, this was clearly one of those cases. So speaking of inappropriate, oh, my God. Okay, the food. Seriously, do not even start me. It was so frustrating. I got to see what people are being fed and it was not good. People are being given ready-made meals in the form of like army-style portion rations. Actually, to call them meals wouldn't be quite right. They were totally gross. They made my airline food on the way over look like the most gourmet shit ever. Like honestly, like one ration slash meal was just boiled potatoes. That was it. Boiled potatoes with some sort of preservative and salt. Uh, Another was some sort of unidentifiable meat and some old manky coleslaw that looked like it was going brown. So here's the thing. The World Health Organization standard for preventing malnutrition in refugees is 2,000 calories per day. That's it, that's that's what they have to achieve if they're handing out rations. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of guidelines being followed for exactly how those 2,000 calories were to be delivered. So if you take a portion of crappy old coleslaw and then you add some sort of crappy hydrogenated vegetable oil in order to increase the calories, that's apparently okay. So understandably, a lot of these meals were going uneaten, which was a real waste of everyone's time and money and resources, I thought. The NGOs at the camp were then burdened with the task of trying to repurpose this food that was left over, if you could call it food. Um, So they were trying to organize for a lot of it to be delivered to other places, and then it would end up at things like local prisons or given out to homeless people. Now, before you think that the refugees are being ungrateful in some way by turning down this food, bear in mind that... Since November, the residents of Ritzona have been switched to ISO boxes with kitchen facilities. So it's not like some camps where they're in tents because the the camps where they're in tents, they're not allowed to have fires or open flame because it's too much of a fire risk inside the tent. So the people in the ISO boxes at Ritzona, they want to cook. And they have the ability to do so. They have these little kitchenettes, yet they're being given these crappy ration food portions instead of real food ingredients. So... What I found out from talking to people is that there's a lot of politics involved as to why this might be happening, and I won't get into it except to say that it may have to do with, say, who's in charge and how the money is changing hands. After all, certain companies have won contracts to feed the camps, so of course there are various parties profiting from the food distribution. So I don't necessarily think the system has the refugees' best interests at heart. That's all I'm going to say. But politics aside, you want to know Lighthouse Relief's solution? They decided not to try to change the ration system right now. Instead, how about we just give out ingredients and encourage people to cook for themselves? Yay! So cooking not only results in a better quality of food for the people living in the camps, it also brings back a sense of dignity, normality and purpose to their day, which I thought was really awesome. So, again, we started with the pregnant and the breastfeeding women in the camp. So, these are the people most being supported by Lighthouse, and Lighthouse would give them take home bags of rice, chickpeas, vegetables, and fruit. It was awesome. Uh, One of our volunteer tasks was actually preparing and distributing these take-home bags. We made hundreds of them. (laughs) It was really cool. So, yeah, in the morning we'd get up and we'd just pack all these bags. We're putting handfuls of everything in each bag and then people would line up and come and grab them. The other thing Lighthouse do every day is that they organise a women's drop-in tent, which was a safe place where women could come away from the men Um, They could bring small children and they could drop by, have a feed and have a chat. It was really lovely, warm, you know, nourishing, beautiful space. We would put out platters every day with things like yogurt, cheese, fruit, breadsticks, peanut butter, salad, nuts We made like a nice sit-down mat area with cushions around a a big low coffee table where women could graze on the healthy food platters at just a relaxed, leisurely pace. The kids loved the yogurt and the peanut butter. The women loved the salad, which was just, you know, it was so simple. It was just fresh greens tossed with olive oil and balsamic vinegar. They went crazy for the greens, which just goes to show that what they're getting served in, you know, in those ration portions, is, there's not going to be any greens in there. They were just going completely nuts for these greens. Um, they also loved the nuts. Um, we would serve them, you know, lots of cashews and some almonds and some walnuts. I turned a blind eye actually one day when some, some of the women were stashing like extra handfuls of cashews in their pockets to take home, I assume for the men and the and their older kids at home. I could see in their eyes that they were enjoying that kind of cheeky thrill of of you know getting a few extra handfuls, and you know honestly, who could begrudge them that so yeah that that was kind of fun to see uh, these drop in sessions were also a great opportunity to chat um, with the women and the children. Now, many of the women were in the camp without their husbands, um, which made me so sad. Here, I was like missing my hubby only after a week apart from him. And I was already like, you know, talking to him via text message and missing him. And then it really put it in perspective when I realized that some of these women hadn't seen their husbands in six months or more and potentially wouldn't see them for years. Um, many of the Syrian women were well-educated, they had some money, they had mobile phones so they could chat to their husbands via Skype. They were okay for clothes and everything. So it wasn't a desperate situation in the camp, but they were stuck. They're not moving forward with their lives and it was really hard to see. Like These women had been waiting in the camps for months, waiting to be processed. Um, their husbands had often gone ahead to pave the way for a new life for them, um, sometimes in places like Germany. Um, but the system would drag things out, and sometimes they would try to send the women to be settled in a different, company to where the, a different country sorry, to where their husbands were. So for example, I, I heard one of the women whose husband was already settled in Germany, but she was told she was being sent to Austria. I mean, what the fuck? Like, why wouldn't the powers that be try and keep the families together? Like, it makes no sense to send a woman and her children to a completely different country to where the hubby is. Um, So seriously, it made no sense to me sometimes. And it was really frustrating for us volunteers on the ground who were trying to help because, you know, it's really hard to know what to say too. Overall, though um, the people I spoke to were trying to remain cheerful. Um, so the the women who were living there, and even some of the men I spoke to, were trying to remain positive. But it was hard, like especially because it's winter over there, so it felt quite bleak. And many of the residents seemed depressed, and you know there was a bit of hope being lost. Um, you know, you look around, there's no grass, there's, you know, the kids are playing in in the dirt with stones and playing in the mud. There's, there's no, you know, there, there's no green, there, you know, it was it was difficult. It was, it was really difficult to see. Um, on some of the really cold days, people just didn't surface from their ISO boxes until after lunchtime. Um, the other thing I saw was that some of the kids were acting out too. Um, I imagine due to the trauma of being in a war zone, and also perhaps the boredom from being in the camp. There were no official school, you know, set up type thing for the kids. So many of the the young children were just kicking around at a loose end. There's a group called IMU over at Ritzona Camp, which helps to educate the kids and give them something to do. And they, they were doing some really good work. And Lighthouse were also in the process of setting up a new child-friendly space, which will be in operation by the time this uh, podcast episode goes to air. And that space looked like it was going to be really cool. So hopefully things are slowly improving on that front when it comes to giving the kids something to do. The kids don't go to the normal local Greek schools there because it's it's possible or it's likely that they're going to soon be moved on to a different country with a different language again. So it was just too much upheaval to try and send them somewhere where, you know, they don't speak Greek and and it would just be hard, you know, for them to transition. Uh, But, you know, on a positive note, the great news is is that a lot of the kids were picking up English super fast, like faster than their parents, um, which was really helping with the communication around the camp big time. The two main languages spoken by the refugees in Ritsona were Arabic, um, mostly by the Syrians, and Farsi, which is spoken by the Afghans. And there were very few interpreters around. So often the kids are called in to translate and, yeah, they were were really good with their English. So I had lots of lovely chats with some of the young kids, you know, asking them about their day and, and talking to them about the food that we were giving them. So, yeah, it was really cool. There were other signs of hope as well. Uh, one one in particular, we met a really cool Syrian man who'd set up a falafel stand inside the camp. For just €1.50, you could get a falafel pocket that was, oh, it was amazing, with hummus and salad. It was epic. Yep, I'm going to admit right now, I ate the bread. I know, I know, right? It's full of gluten, but if I was going to have a blowout while I was away at least I was it was happening supporting someone like this and it was this authentic beautiful handmade food so you know I I ate some I admit it <laughs> And you know what it was freaking delicious it was so good Um, A couple of team members and myself from Australia had actually stashed some spices in our luggage to give away as gifts because we were told before we left that Middle Eastern spices are actually really hard to find in Greece. So we thought when we got there, we thought the fairest thing to do was to give all our spices to Falafel Man because he was doing such a good job with them and he'd run out of a lot of the stuff. So we gave him cumin, coriander root and sumac. He was so super stoked and I've even got a photo of him using the sumac on the falafel pocket straight away, like as soon as we gave it to him. Word on the street was actually that he's being settled in Geneva soon. So hopefully he takes that entrepreneurial spirit with him and that, you know, when he gets to Geneva, hopefully he'll have a falafel business there if, you know, if that's what he wants to do. The food was amazing. He was a really, really talented bloke. Now, although the original plan was to stay in Ritsona camp for the whole two weeks for me, it became quickly apparent that there wasn't quite enough work to go around. Although there were lots of daily tasks to do, like, you know, heaps of stuff there to to keep us busy, um, mostly food prep and making up all those take-home packs with the healthy food. But none of us, there were four of us there that had come from Involvement Volunteers International and none of us four felt like we were under the pump enough to warrant all of us being there. So two of us decided to move on to where there was a greater need. So this often happens in volunteer work as everything is constantly in flux and it changes very quickly. And over in Greece at the moment, camps are closing and new ones are opening every week and you never know quite what's going to happen. Refugees are often moved around on short notice and therefore volunteers often move around on short notice to where they are required the most. So two of us, myself and a wonderful naturopath called Sharon Farrell from Wollongong, we drove back to Athens and then we flew out to an island called Chios, which is a Greek island close to Turkey. It's so close to Turkey that you can actually see the mainland of Turkey really clearly um, from, from the shore of Greece. So it's only a few kilometres, if that. Now, it's one of the islands where the boats are coming in. So I'll tell you more about my island experience next week, as that's worthy of a whole other podcast episode. Before we left Ritzona, however, we packaged up all the tea blends and we wrote detailed instructions on how to brew them. And then before we left, we also went to a local homeware store and we bought teapots and a kettle and some canisters to store the herbal teas. These would be left behind in a new women-friendly space for future use. So... Then, to make it extra special, the volunteers we left behind, uh, the lovely Sammy and Shay, decided to run a tea party. It was a huge hit. I don't think anyone had had a party in a long time. (laughs) I think about 200 women turned up. I'll have to find out for sure, but I think that was the number. Um, One of the Lighthouse Relief Coordinators was actually gobsmacked at how this tea party was received. It seems that... Once the basic needs of people are met, you know, things like food and water, it can be easy to forget that these people are still suffering and the tea party raised everyone's spirits and I'm sure they'll be talking about it for weeks to come. So there were medicinal teas, all those ones I spoke about earlier, plus the girls provided some yummy sweets and they made these take-home tea packs for the women as well. The volunteer's educated the women on the benefits of each of the herbal teas and also how to use them. The women were particularly interested in the breastfeeding tea, which was awesome, and the cough and cold tea. Because like I said, there had been a flu epidemic going around in the camps. And even though the ice boxes are warm, they're also filled with a really dry heat. And many of the residents had this nasty lingering cough. So the cough and cold tea was perfect for them. So The whole event, this whole tea party was not only good for the body, but it was also good for the soul. And it was just, it was lovely to see, even though Sharon and I had already moved on, um, Sammy and Shay sent us lots of photos and we got the full report about what a success that party was. So I will post a couple of photos up on the website from that as well. So if you contributed some funds to my crowdfunding campaign, know that your donation was very, very much appreciated. I'll go through how the rest of the money was spent in next week's show, because once we got to Kiosk, there was a lot more needs that had to be met. There were there were heaps of you know, more urgent needs that had to be met, and there were a lot of things that we spent our money on once we got there. Okie dokie. So... That is my recap of week one in Greece. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you hit subscribe because next week I'll fill you in on my time in Kiosk. That was the island. And that, that was a whole other scene indeed. Those camps, they were rat infested. They're still in tents. Um, it's overcrowded. It was full of health issues. And sometimes it was even violent. So tune in next week and I'll tell you all about it. In the meantime, if you want to check out some photos from my trip to Greece, like I said, there'll be some up on my website right now. Head to my website at julesgalloway.com. And while you're there, I have some awesome free gifts available for you too, including a guide for healing adrenal fatigue and a brand new healthy dessert ebook. Yay! So that's all waiting for you now at julesgalloway.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again next week. In the meantime, stay shiny and bye for now. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. TheWellnessCouch, streaming wellness into your lives